Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. You're invited to join us for our Christmas Eve services at 2, 3.30, or 5 p.m. And if you can't be with us in person, you can join our online campus at 3.30 on Christmas Eve. Today, Senior Pastor Perry Duggar continues the Christmas series called Christmas Messengers. This episode is titled Strangers Following a Star. You'll see how God used the star as a Christmas messenger to lead wise men to a Savior. Here's Perry Duggar. Sing hallelujah to the light of the world. This is a season to be especially cognizant of the coming of Christ. We continue our message series, Christmas Messengers. And today's title is Strangers Following a Star. If you can take out your program, the theme verse out of this passage is there appears on the top of that outline. We saw his star as it arose. We have come to worship him from Matthew 2, 2. The messenger for these strangers for a far, from a foreign land was what? What? Was what? Goodness. We need some vitamin C or something out here. What is it? The barometric pressure is down? So what is it? Who was the messenger? I'm hard of hearing. A star. Yeah, now. Come on in here with me. God used a wide variety of people and create parts of his creation to convey Christmas messages. The Savior has been born, including stars. So we're going to see the message of the star and the things that happened after the star appeared. First, the message of the star expressed an understandable message. We're in Matthew chapter 2, in this Bible available here, page 772, and we're beginning at verse 1 in chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the, time, the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking. Now, the Bible doesn't really provide what much information about these mysterious men. They're called wise men in this New Living Translation. They're referred to as magi, which is the Greek word in the NIV and the NASB in particular. Some translations call them royal astrologers or sorcerers. But much of what we think about these men does not come from the Bible at all. You know where it comes from? Where do you think? Say, what, say it again. Songs, Christmas carols, tradition, stories, movies, cartoons. We pick up a lot of our information from media. Now that's not all bad, but you better be careful. Because when the media is the one that's instructing us in the essence of the gospel and who God is and who Jesus was, it will be full of a lot of error that will cause us to domesticate God. 
and calls us to control who he is instead of him controlling who we are and how we view him. For example, there's no evidence they were kings, yet how many of you have these, um, the three kings on your mantle wearing crowns? How many are, how many are wearing crowns? Oh no, they've ripped you off. <laughs> there's no evidence they were kings. In fact, it's most likely, almost certain, they were not kings. They were advisors to kings, and they provided counsel on a wide variety of subject matters. Science, law, religion, math, philosophy. But they also were men who would interpret dreams, and they would divine the future through magic. In fact, the Greek word translated magic is the same word, and it's the origin for magi, comes from magi. These men were a combination of scientist and sorcerer. In fact, the Greek word magi is also translated in some instances sorcerer. They practiced medicine and the occult. They combined the science of astronomy with the superstition of astrology. And in those days, there really was little distinction between what was scientific and what was superstition or occult magic. Now, they came from the east. They may have originated from Arabia or Asia, perhaps India or China. But it's much more likely that they came from the land of the Medes and Persians, which today would be what? Iran, yeah. Or Babylon which today is what? Iraq, yeah. Instead of riding on camels, they may have well been astride Arabian horses. So what you can do is you can cut the legs off your camels, <laughs> paint them white, and you'll be approximating what they actually were riding. <laughs> they ask at Matthew 2.2, 2, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. These wise men were not Jews. They were Gentiles. So how did they even know about a Jewish king? Now, I think, and again, you just consider my suggestion I think it may have been from Daniel or some other Jewish captive who was serving in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who told the Babylonians about the one true God and the Messiah King who would be born 600 years later. Now, Persia conquered Babylon. They did so in 539 B.C., and so these Persians, though, as well as conquering Babylon, they would have absorbed some of the information, some of the education, some of the understanding of the Babylonians and the Hebrew slaves that lived there. So the Persians would have retained perhaps this information. And these Magi may have been aware of the Hebrew prophecy found at Numbers 24, 17, which you see on the screen. I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, 
but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. And so when they saw this star, they came. You know, we've heard and we believe that they followed the star, right? Who's, who's heard that? They followed the star. Where'd that come from? Christmas carols. That's where it came from. The scripture doesn't say they followed a star. It says they saw a star. I'm not sure how you follow a star. Now, the North Star, you know, people in ships have for years followed the North Star, but all it did was tell them this way is north. <laughs> it didn't take them to a particular city. So why would they show up in Jerusalem? Well, that was the religious and the governmental center of Israel. So it just made sense. It was the most obvious place to find a successor to the throne. Once they arrived, they asked openly, where's the newborn king? Where can he be found? Because they thought everyone would know. They thought this would be a celebrated event, one that would be received joyously. It wasn't. But what about that star? You know, scholars like to debate what the star was. Some say it was an alignment of two planets, Jupiter and Saturn. You know, they realigned again in the last year. Did you know that? But nobody showed up in Greenville looking for... Others, no, no, no. It wasn't an alignment of planets. It was a supernova, which was a faint star that exploded violently and gave off enormous light for a short period. Possibly it was a comet passing close by the earth, most likely Halley's Comet. I remember when I was a senior in high school, Halley's Comet came nearby. Do y'all remember that in the 70s? And people who had no interest in God got real scared they were soon to see him in my, in my senior class. But I don't think it's necessary to discover a natural explanation for a supernatural occurrence. God created a sign. And he created a sign that these particular men would recognize and would alert them to the birth of the Messiah. Now it's interesting to note Jews were forbidden to consult the stars. They weren't to interpret omens or rely on sorcery or any kind of divination to discern the future. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 13, Jeremiah 10, 1 and 2. But these men pursued all those practices that the Old Testament forbade. Was God being inconsistent? You think he was? Why not? Roland says there are different rules for different people. You think that's true? If you don't think that's true, Roland, you have to sit over there on the... God wasn't being inconsistent. You see, God wants his people to rely on his word in the scriptures. 
and the words spoken from him through his prophets. But these men were not his people, at least yet. And these wise men, they were astronomers, they were astrologers, and they searched the heavens systematically. They would notice when something new appeared in the heavens. God knows you. He knows what you'll notice. He knows what will capture your attention. He knows us individually. He sends messages appropriately to call us to his son. He provides direction that we will receive. You see, when God issues an invitation to a person, he delivers that message in a way that person will understand, in a way that person will not miss. God's built it into you. He knows your personality, so he sends an appropriate message. Years ago, there was a book by a missionary named Don Richardson. Any of you familiar with Don Richardson? Oh, it was a long time ago. Only a few of you were alive then. Mike was alive. I was alive. But he, had, he wrote several books, Lords of the Earth, Eternity in Their Hearts, and Peace Child. And in these books, particularly Peace Child and then Eternity in Their Hearts, he points out how God builds an analogy, an understanding into a culture to prepare them to understand the gospel when it arrives. You know Peace Child. And in the book Peace Child, for example, there were two warring tribes in Erie and Jaya. And when he was telling the gospel story, it didn't go well. Because he told about Jesus, he told about Judas, and the people started cheering because they valued deception. And so the hero of the gospel story was Judas for deceiving Jesus and leading him to his death. Well, don't you think that's a problem if you were a missionary? He prayed over it, he studied over it, he was concerned. How do you straighten out this confusion? Eventually, these two warring tribes made peace. And to seal the agreement, one child gave the other child, I mean, one tribe gave the other tribe a child. That child, Don Richardson said, who is this child? And they said, he's the peace child. And anyone who ever harms or offends that child commits the greatest offense in our land, in our nation, among our people. And so Don Richardson had the analogy to clarify the good news that Jesus was the peace child given from God to us to end the war. But you know what he's discovered as a missionary? There are analogies and understandings in cultures 
throughout the world. And it's in a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. But you will see how God communicates to people and plants in their understanding and un- something that later the gospel will connect with. You know that book. For us, for outdoors men and women, he may use the majesty of the mountains and the beauty of creation. Because Romans 1 says that creation displays his power, displays his nature. And it may be that it's through that that you've been reached initially by God. For a scholar, it might be rigorous study. And there have been numerous individuals who sought to disprove Christianity, even the existence of Jesus, by study. Lee Strobel was one, a journalist from Chicago. Another was Josh McDowell. They both sought to disprove the Christian faith and both ended up converted. Many scientists have been converted as they honestly studied the complexity and the order of creation, the, the, the extreme detail of DNA that created a pattern, a map for the next creation, and it blew holes in Darwin's or, origin of the species, who, by the way, would not confirm present-day understanding. So God communicates with you according to your nature because he knows your personality. 20 years ago, I brought a professor here to teach on a Sunday, Stuart Patterson. He was the dean of faculty and also the chairman of the chemistry department at Furman. And I brought him to teach a presentation on a Sunday and also Sunday afternoon, is evolution supported by scientific evidence? And this man was a, was a Christian, at least nominally, and some students wanted to study whether creation could be supported. And they asked him to be their advisor. Just being a, you know, a good professor, he wanted to help these young men and women. So he said, sure. But he studied so that he could be informed about what they were searching. And he studied himself into embracing not only creation, but also a young earth. Unfortunately, did any of you remember that? Were you here then? Yeah, he's passed away, unfortunately, a number of years ago. But how did God lead you to his son? It may have been through a book, a message, a friend. Someone told me this morning it was through a, a tragedy in his life. What caused you to encounter the good news for the first time? Because you know what? There are as many different stories as there are people in this room. Because every attraction, every invitation was individual and personal. The message of the star. You say, well, I want to study some of that. Well, we have a lot of books in the bookstore, apologetics books, so you could pick some of them up. But the the Don Richardson books are not there. You'd have to order them. The message of the star also exposed unbelief in others. Verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. 
as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now, when these wise men ask about this newborn king, how do you think Herod responded? How? He didn't like it. He was enraged because he was the king of the Jews. Now, he wasn't Jewish. He was Idumean. But he'd been awarded that position by the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. There's also the fact that because of the long journey that these wise men had undertaken, they had traveled through hostile Roman territory. So they likely, well, it wasn't three guys on camels. They were likely accompanied by a large caravan, perhaps even a small army. And so the people living in Jerusalem would have feared an ensuing battle because they knew Herod to be a cruel, vicious ruler who would quickly murder suspected rivals. He had already killed his own wife, his brother-in-law, and three of his sons who he thought were seeking his throne. So the people would be very concerned Herod decided to discover what the Jewish religious experts knew about this Messiah who was to be born. Verse 4. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, that's Micah 5.2, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. That's from 2 Samuel 5.2. Then Herod called, well, see, did the experts know where Jesus was to be born? Did they go and check it out? It was only six miles away. We have no indication they took a single step to try to discover whether this Messiah had come. They weren't interested in the Messiah. So how could they be like that? Well, that might describe some of us. We know all the facts. We might even say, well, I know where Jesus can be found. I know some information about him. And when I get around to wanting that, I'll I'll pursue. When the doctor says I only have a short time to live, then I'll try, I'll, I'll reach out and grab Jesus. But right now, he'll get in my way. He he might interrupt my lifestyle. He'll confront my immorality. He will will convict me of my self-centered living. I don't want him. I don't have room for him now. But before I die, I'll, I'll get him. I know where he can be found. But you don't go. You don't seek. You don't really want to find the Savior. Verse 7. 
Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. He told them, go to Bethlehem and carefully search for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Herod pretended a desire to honor the newborn king. And he told the Magi where to search for him. Did they know? Did they know where to go? No. They didn't know where to go. So this evil king actually provided them information to get them closer to the Savior. But he instructed them, now go and find him. You do the work, search him out, and then you come back and tell me where you found him. These magi were sincerely seeking the Messiah. They endured hardships, delays, expense, difficulties, and danger as they crossed through the wilderness, through the desert, through the hostile lands of the Romans to find the new king. But their eager pursuit revealed disinterest in the religious experts and hostility in King Herod. Have you noticed whenever you're earnestly, eagerly seeking Christ, trying to live out your faith diligently, honestly, you will expose others who are indifferent or perhaps antagonistic to Jesus. That happened to anyone? I remember when I came to faith, before most of you were born. I was one of those, I knew the facts about Jesus. I would have called myself a Christian. I knew all the, all the facts. I didn't go to church, I didn't know anything like that. But in my fraternity, there were a couple of guys that would go to church. The rest of us were recovering on Sunday morning, but they'd go to church. Well, you've heard my testimony. The the Spirit of God just hit me one night in the hallway of this two-story house I lived in. It convicted me, and I was born again. And I was different. And I realized that the faith I professed was a sham, shallow, because you know, it it didn't affect the way I lived at all. And so suddenly I know Christ. And so I go seeking these guys that I knew that went to church and I was so excited and I talked to them about Christ and living for Christ and changing the way we were operating. You think they were excited? Uh-uh. They wanted to shut me down, get back to what I was. A little nominal faith is enough. They had a, a faith in a box that they thought would get them to heaven, but it wouldn't interfere with anything on earth. And some even told me, oh, you'll, you'll come back down to normal. You'll get over this excitement, and then you'll just be a Christian. You know what? 
I never got back to normal. Because when the Spirit of God fills you, He doesn't leave. And if His influence gets diminished, it's because you are quenching His influence. Not because He's less interested in animating you toward Christ. But how many of us have seen that? You come to faith and you thought you were in a family full of Christians and suddenly the ones you thought were already Christians that used to tell you what you were supposed to be doing now want to shut you up and calm you down and quiet what you're saying and definitely stop you from interfering in their lifestyles. Anybody have this experience? And it's quite confusing It's puzzling that these religious experts didn't even want to go six miles to find out if the Messiah had been born because they didn't care about the Messiah. They had religious jobs. And if the Son of God showed up, it would take away their authority. They were the final word to that point. The king didn't want anybody else leading the people but him. So he wanted no part of a new new ruler. But let me tell you all something. In this rapidly declining culture we're in, keep speaking, keep standing, keep talking. The reason today we have satanic clubs meeting in our high schools, we have women dressed, men dressed as women doing programs in our libraries is because we stopped speaking. We stopped standing. Speak. I didn't say create fights. I didn't say attack. Speak. This stuff doesn't happen unless we're passive, but we have been passive for decades. And we just got shoved right out of the community centers. The message of the star enabled an encounter with Jesus, verse 9. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Now, with the king's direction, they started toward Bethlehem. But, but they didn't know how to locate this child. And they didn't know how to identify which child was the king. So they were stranded. They were stopped. Until God sent a star. You think this was the same star that signaled the birth of the Jewish king? Do you? How many think that? It was the same star. Come on, let's see some courage. Who thinks that? I have to have somebody to call on. (laughs) They said, that's why we sit in the top. It couldn't have been the same star. Because a star in space can't stop over a particular place. 
this star that they saw moved ahead of them and it stopped over one house. It couldn't be even a hundred feet in the air, much less thousands and thousands and miles, hundreds of thousands of miles in the air to stop over one house. So what was it? It was some kind of shining phenomenon. It might have been an angel. But it was something that was identified as a star. But it was sent specifically over one spot. When we pursue the Savior honestly, God will provide the direction we need at each step. Perhaps a star, more likely a book, a person, a message, or an event. All of them led by the Spirit of God, who is probably responsible for all of these different kinds of direction we receive. Verse 11, they entered the house. All right, how many times does the word stable appear in the Bible and where is it? Huh? Jane, are you talking down there? How many times does it appear? Zero. Zero. Do y'all know that? Stable never appears in this story. Well, where did we get it? Songs, Christmas cards, manufacturers of nativity sets. Which, by the way, there's not much wood in Israel. You don't find wooden houses in Israel. At this time, when Jesus was born, every pl- the place people, places people were lived were, were made of stone. And, you know, it's interesting, in, in our country, we have all this timber so we can build structures to live in, you know, even in primitive days. In Israel, everything's limestone, which is soft enough to chip out. So lots of the people lived in caves. Caves are still there. The animals were almost always stored in caves. So what's called a house here was perhaps a cave. And the Greek word is oikia. It certainly doesn't say stable. And they saw the child. This word child is a Greek word, padion. And it means child, not brephos, which means infant or newborn baby. When the angels told the the shepherds to go and find the babe, it was the Greek word brephos. But the child is not newborn at the time that these wise men arrive. So they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. It could have been the same house where Jesus was born. It's just not he's just been born. 
because you see what was happening. They didn't, you know, you, we, we all know the story about they went to the what for a place to stay? Inn. There were no inns in Bethlehem. This small village had no commercial housing. So what was happening is the census had been called for. So everybody went to Bethlehem whose family line was from there. And where do you think they stayed? They stayed with relatives. Well, so all the relatives are packed into the houses and they had a, an, an extra room called the Cataluma, which was where guests would sleep. But then they also would have an area, usually lower down or in a cave, where they would put the animals. And that's why there was a manger there. Well, what probably happened is Mary is now full-term pregnant, riding a donkey. So do you think she traveled rapidly? They probably arrived after everybody had already chosen their spot. You ever showed up at somebody's house and you had to sleep on the floor? It's, you know that, went to relatives' houses, and so you were fighting to see who could get in the door to get on the sofa first. Well, that's what happened. There was no place for Mary and this child. And perhaps there was a little bit of privacy for her to deliver this child so she wouldn't traumatize the other kids that were packed in there. But the extra guest had already returned home. So they may have been up in the guest room by now or in a completely different place. But when did these wise men arrive? Well, their journey was at least a thousand miles. It may have been twice that. And so it would have taken not less than three or four months and that's covering 30 miles a day. It's interesting to note in Matthew 2.16 that when, when Herod issued a command to kill the boys that had been newly born in Bethlehem, he set the age at two years old and under. And he, he, he set it at that age based on the time when the star first appeared. So it could have been as much as two years later that they arrived. Certainly could have been less, but it wasn't when he had just been born. That's why when we set up our nativity scene, the camels are across the room. (laughs) Finding Jesus can take a while. And we may have to endure times of delay, confusion, opposition, frustration. When God doesn't seem to be providing clear direction. Some of you might be there now. You've taken some steps, but you haven't arrived yet. Sometimes God has to work in us, refining our character before he can reveal Jesus to us. Upon finding the child, imagine if you were one of these magi. You see this kid, this couple, you think we have made a mistake. That kid does not look like a king, and his parents sure don't look like royalty. There's nothing about this appearance or these circumstances that indicated this was a future king. But they knew Jesus' identity. 
they knew he was the Messiah. Well, how do I know that? Because it says they bowed down and worshipped him. And these people who did work with kings wouldn't bow down to a peasant. And they wouldn't have offered gifts like this. Here's some additional evidence. Continues in 2.11. They opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The significance of their gifts reveals their understanding of Jesus' identity. And by the way, this is the only indicator that there were three of them. Nowhere else does it say that. Gold was a common symbol of kings. It acknowledged Jesus' right to rule. Frankincense was used in temple offerings. It was burnt as sacrifice to God. So it symbolized his divinity as God's son. Myrrh was a resin that it would be mixed with wine and it had an anesthetic, a pain-killing effect. But also, you remember where myrrh was also used? It was rubbed on linen cloths and it was wrapped around the body of a corpse to hold down the odor. So myrrh represents the suffering and the death of Jesus. These gifts weren't appropriate for an ordinary child. You'd give them a carved animal or something, a, a ball, something to play with, not, a, not gold and frankincense and myrrh. But what this did is it revealed that these magi knew the identity of this special child. How? How could it happen? Was it visual? No. Was it based on human logic or observation at all? Was it? No. It wasn't for them. It isn't for you. These magi had the identity of Jesus revealed to them. And if you were born again today, it's because the Spirit of God has revealed to you the identity of Jesus. And when the Spirit of God does that, which happens in the process of being born again, you can never deny the truth. Now, I think lots of people make a, an American reasonable decision that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's not by revelation, and that's why they wander away later on. Because they, the way they want to live, or they want to pursue a material lifestyle, or even an immoral lifestyle. So they just wander away. But I'll tell you this, if you have encountered Christ, and you've experienced His Spirit, it's been confirmed to you, His identity, you can't deny it any more than I can deny the two daughters I have or the four grandchildren. Coming close, traveling to Jerusalem like these magi, even arriving in Bethlehem, that wouldn't have been enough for these magi. It wouldn't have been enough. They had to encounter Jesus personally. So do you. Have you encountered 
the Savior individually, personally, dramatically, transformationally. Because that's what happens in salvation. The information is not saving. It's the experience that's saving. It's not enough to attend church. It's not enough to be in a family of believers. You have to experience Christ by yourself, one-to-one. Have you done that? We'll have some counselors here. They'll be happy to pray with you, to talk with you. Call on the name of the Lord, it says, and you shall be saved. There's not a better time to come to faith in Christ than Christmas. I want to remind you there are apologetics books available if you want to, want to do some study. Um, Don Richardson books can be ordered. I did not plan ahead because I, I don't write the message till the week of preaching it. So those books are not in the bookstore, but you can order them. Don Richardson, Peace Child, Eternity in Their Heart. There's also one called Lords of the Earth. Now, as we close, we have one order of business. So I call us into a business meeting and we need to confirm our slate of trustees. The two new nominees are Mike Clark and Robert Dennis. They come on this year and trustees in this church can serve three one-year terms, but they have to be renewed and affirmed every year. Jason Bergeron and Carl Krauth came on last year. Uh, Chuck Church and Judy Olson came on two years ago. So all of these people, we're, today you're, we're just recommending you for one year. Um, we don't recommend Jerry Fry. He is a permanent trustee and the mayor of Brookwood. So, <laughs> so, so he's on there, but he doesn't have to be. A, <laughs> you can affirm him, but... <laughs> But if you're in this room, stand up. If you, you know, if, if you're trustees, uh, you're on this. No, not, that's not the vote. I mean, if you're one of these folks, stand up so somebody can see you. Yeah. But then I'll, then I'll ask you, but if you'll affirm our slate, now please stand. Okay, they pass, and I'll close this in prayer. Father, I pray that if there's someone on the path right now, I pray that you will draw them. Use a star, use a person. Use a book, use an event, use a process, use something to draw this person, these many people to yourself. Lord, may this Christmas be the day of salvation for many in this room. So Lord, confirm to each of us where we stand. Where are we on the road? Have we experienced the Savior? Are we close by? And Lord, I pray that you would draw us, that we would be born again, that we would know the Savior, the Messiah, the King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. One way you can grow closer to God is by spending time with Him. Set aside some time at least five minutes every day this week without distractions to pray and to listen to God. Coming up in our next episode, we'll continue the Christmas Messenger series. To prepare, read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. 
You're invited to join us for our Christmas Eve services at 2, 3.30, or 5 p.m. And if you can't be with us in person, be sure to join our online campus at 3.30 on Christmas Eve. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Christmas Messenger series. Thanks for listening, and have a great Christmas.